Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord, Editor-in-Chief of No Film School. I'm John Fusco, Producer at No Film School. I'm Charles Hain, Writer at No Film School. It's September 1st, 2016. I cannot believe I'm saying September. On this week's show, the FAA's brand spanking new drone regulations and how they'll affect us all. The passing of a beloved actor and the long-awaited release of the Canon 5D Mark IV. And, as always, news you can use about gear, upcoming deadlines, new film releases, and everyone's favorite segment, Ask No Film School. Welcome to this week's show. As always, we're coming at you from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School, and we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. As mentioned at the top of the show, I can hardly believe it's September. Happy back to school, film students. We are so excited about this month that kicks off the big fall festival season, starting with TIFF, the Toronto International Film Festival, where we will be reporting from next week. And our big news here at No Film School is that our founder, Ryan Koo, wrapped shooting on his feature film, Amateur, for Netflix. Woo! Yay, he's coming back. Maybe... <laughs> well, after after you rap, you still have to edit. Yeah. Well, actually, you know, I talked about this with him earlier, and he's always uh, been in the position where he's had to edit his own stuff. He is a very uh, strong proponent of that method, but he's really relieved because he's actually not going to be editing this one himself. So, I mean, I'm sure he'll still be in the editing bay, but he'll be more hands-off than he usually is. I think that's a great call for a feature, and we're so excited to see Ryan again and, of course, to see the eventual film. Moving on to headlines outside of our offices, we reported back in June when the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration, or FAA, announced their new regulations for unmanned aircraft systems, or like most of us call them, drones. As of this Monday, those regulations, which are being referred to as the Part 107 rules, are in effect. This is a big deal for many of you out there who are getting into aerial photography or cinematography, and it will probably affect all of our lives in some way, given that we all have the sky above our heads. The biggest change for commercial droners that these uh, regulations bring about is that the person operating the controls of the drone no longer needs to be an actual airline pilot, like for a plane. That's how it used to be. And obviously, this significantly lowers the barrier to entry for drone pilots. I have a question about that because I've seen people that definitely don't look like pilots using drones, just like very small drones with GoPros attached to them. Is what does like a pilot look of, like, John? They don't look like me. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, these they regulations <laughs> also stipulate that you have to wear a pilot cap at all times. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I, no, you're right. The, the big difference is we're talking about commercial droners, so people who are doing this for a living and making money flying drones. Okay, so there's a difference between sort of hobbyists and commercial droners then, I suppose? Exactly, and there's regulations for all of them, so we actually have a post up on the site that details the new regulations and what you need to do to register your drone and to certify to fly both for hobbyists and for commercial users. And of course, there are different regulations for each. I think what you're hitting on, John, is that maybe on some indie shoots, you've seen some people doing some drone work professionally who don't necessarily seem like they've been following all the regulations. And I think Previous to these announcements from the FAA, drone work was sort of a wild west, and you'd definitely be like, on an indie music video with a drone person who maybe isn't licensed. And I think now that the FAA has made the rules very clear, it really behooves us as filmmakers to get out there and make sure we're licensed, because if anything ever happened... If there was an accident with the drone, these things are going to really matter. And so if you're out there and you're sort of on the borderline of like doing a little bit of professional drone work here or there, 
it makes sense to really pay attention to what's going on here. And actually, to that point, we have a post, another post on the site from one of the very first unmanned aircraft pilots to have passed the FAA's new certification exam on the very first day, which was this past Monday. He's a friend of No Film School, Randall Asulto of Burko Aerial. His article gives some pointers on how you can prepare for and pass the test without taking one of the expensive courses that have been popping up. And basically what he was telling me is that it seems like this big list of new regulations and taking a certification exam may kind of like feel like a drag. And also, just as you were saying, John, like, well, I've seen plenty of people flying drones before there were regulations. And basically, he told me that they're actually a really good thing for the same kind of reasons that Charles was just pointing at. He told me, for people flying drones commercially, it was a long-awaited legitimization of the industry that created a pathway for us to safely develop and or continue all kinds of professional work. Everyone was excited that we no longer had to be or become certified Part 61 pilots. And uh, for those of you who remember what happened with the sound recordists, a lot of sound recordists never registered that they were using wireless equipment. So the FCC didn't think a lot of people were using wireless equipment and gave that bandwidth away. And uh, things like that can happen. So if you're a drone user, register that you're a drone user. Let the government know there are lots of drone users. So the FCC is paying attention and allocates bandwidth properly. And uh, in the long term, it's better for all of us. So with these new regulations, the FAA expects 600,000 commercial drones in the air within a year. That's just commercial drones. Not We're not even talking about the hobbyists. So just to give that some context, they report that there's currently 20,000 drones registered for commercial use in the air. So from 20,000 to 600,000, that's a 30-fold increase. And all of this means that a lot will change for everybody, not just drone photographers. The U.S. Transportation Secretary, Anthony Fox, told NPR that this is, quote, one of the most dramatic periods of change in the history of transportation. The news industry is also jumping on the bandwagon, or I don't know, the drone equivalent of jumping on the bandwagon. That feels so antiquated jumping on the at this rotors? point. They're flying on the balloon? I don't know. <laughs> Not that. <laughs> We'll give it some thought. Anyway, um, so yeah, the news industry in a move aligned with all of these expectations, CNN has launched a new drone journalism department called CNN Air. Right now, the department only has two full-time aerial photographers, but they've often been a bellwether for technological advances in journalism, like with their whole iReport thing, which predicted the advancement of citizen journalism with the emergence of smartphones. Can you give some context as, as to that iReport thing? Yeah, iReport is the... Um, project that CNN did for several years, which is now really just folded into their regular reporting, where they started accepting submissions from anyone around the globe who was taking images or, or film with their cell phones. And so that's how CNN was able to break stories from like the Arab Spring, for example. Which is something that when you watch the news now, it just seems completely normal. Mm -hmm. But when CNN started doing it, it was actually kind of a big deal that anybody could see their footage on the news. Yeah, I actually I now remember sort of seeing like uh, on the our local New York news, they always have plugs at the end for like, send in your footage, send in your news. And I never really thought of it as a way for news places to actually like get legitimate news from. I always thought, oh... These are ways for us to like increase our engagement with our audience or let them have the novelty of seeing their story on air, their video on air. But it's, it seems like a legitimate news source now. It's crazy. 
Yeah, that's why when we reported on the show a couple weeks ago about how the International Documentary Association had, um, you know, started this whole petition sort of in support of citizen journalists, because us filmmakers are pretty closely aligned with those sort of man on the street photographers these days. Anyway, for those kind of geeky gearheads out there, I'll have you know that CNN Senior Director of News Operations, Greg Agvent, was interviewed on the Drone360 website, and he said that they're currently working with off-the-shelf equipment, like the DJI equipment, but they're also collaborating with several manufacturers to create the perfect broadcast drone that meets the technical requirements of broadcasting live. So stuff's about to blow up, and for those of you flying drones or wanting to fly drones commercially, go ahead, register, take the test, and it looks like there will be a lot more professional opportunities uh, out there for you very soon. I'm just thinking about this because... I've been trying to like play the stock market and stuff. Do you think there's like a company to invest in for for all this new drone technology if it's really gonna about to explode like thirty fold like this? Or? Well, I don't know if DJ, DJI is public, but mm-hmm. if DJI is public, they're the market leader at the moment. Mm-hmm. There are others moving in like Para and Yi, but DJI is a big player. Okay. Also harder to say than I thought. It always comes out like DGI when I say it, but yeah. it is DJI. J-I. In sadder news, the world lost a bit of pure imagination on Monday with the passing of beloved comic actor Gene Wilder. He had a knack for doing wry, sharp, comedic characters, frankly, without being a dick. And I think that that influence can be felt even more in indie-style comedies than in mainstream ones today. Some of his most famous roles are Willy Wonka himself in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory and Leo Bloom in The Producers, for which he was nominated for an Oscar as Best Supporting Actor in 1967. He was also nominated as a screenwriter alongside his frequent collaborator Mel Brooks for Young Frankenstein in 1975. I don't really have many uh, incredible insights into the man's career, but I can just say personally he was a big inspiration for me. Um, I mean, he was so funny in everything that he did. Blazing Saddles was one of the first R-rated movies I've ever seen. And um, I mean, he's just... He he was funny without trying to be funny. You know, he he just exuded um, greatness, comedic greatness, and uh, yeah, I, I don't really know what else to say. He was uh, he was one of my favorites, and it's sad to see him go. His nephew is actually Jordan Walker Perlman, um, who's an indie filmmaker. He was nominated for an Independent Spirit Award for his film The Visit, and I heard him interviewed on NPR uh, yesterday after Wilder passed away. And he said that though Wilder was diagnosed with Alzheimer's a few years ago, he didn't want his condition disclosed publicly. And the reason why really broke my heart. He said um, children still recognize him on the street, and he was afraid that the news would prompt their parents to discuss the disease in front of them. And he said he didn't want to be the cause of any unhappiness in the world. I wasn't sure I could get through that sentence without crying. We'll miss you, Gene Wilder. On to gear news. This week, the biggest news in gears, the release of the Canon 5D Mark IV. It's the long-awaited update to the camera that started the whole uh, DSLR revolution. And it was released this week, and the Internet's really not pleased, which is sort of the Internet's job. Uh, <laughs> the camera finally adds 4K capture, which is great. Everybody else has had it for like five years, but it's great that Canon's catching up. I mean, Red One has had it for eight years, but that's another animal. Um but the internet's really frustrated that it's a crop and not a full frame. Uh, a crop isn't actually terrible. Uh, using a crop avoids a lot of the problems with the 5D. You don't get the moray issues. You don't get a lot of the pixel binning artifacts. And you don't have the loss of low light sensitivity with a crop. So there's benefits to the crop. The problem is, is 
because you're cropping in, your wide lenses are no longer as wide, your field of view changes. And I think that's really frustrating for a lot of filmmakers because the 5D has always been that, like, I go out with the kit lens and I shoot whatever I want thing. And it's requiring new investment in lenses that doesn't necessarily feel as indie to be able to go out with, like, only $3,000 and shoot whatever you want. I think the 5D Mark IV is a great upgrade if you're already on the Mark III and you shoot with it every day. And in addition to upgrading the body, you can get a few more really wide-angle lenses to work with the 4K crop. I think for most other people, it's not the best fit anymore. And there's a lot of other options in the marketplace that are going to be a much better move. There's cameras with H.265, like the GH4. The other big drawback the internet's frustrated by is that Canon is still using motion JPEG encoding, where there are a lot of other video cameras going to H.265. Canon's putting a lot more work with video encoding into their cinema line of cameras, the C100, the C300, the C500, great cameras all. Canon has always viewed this as a still camera, and I think the market is finally accepting that. I'd just like to um, also plug our Canon Decade of DSLRs podcast that we did at Sundance earlier this year. Um, the I, I forget exactly what his position is in within Canon, but he kind of goes through the entire evolution of Canon from stills camera to video camera and how it was always sort of a mistake <laughs> that it took off as in the way it did with filmmakers. Um, it's really interesting to listen to. So if you get a chance, um, scroll through our podcast page and check it out. Awesome. In other news, SLR Magic came out with a new filter. Filters don't get the love they used to. Back when we, you know, in the 90s, when you had to do an answer print to finish your movie, filters were one of the big ways you had image control. You couldn't control only a part of the frame in post. You had to do that in camera. In fact, Slow Emir Ijak made his reputation on custom-made filters. So, because we haven't really had as much filter news in the digital era, where you can manipulate the image in post, it's always exciting when we do get new filters, and SLR Magic has just released what they're calling the Image Enhancer Pro, which is a filter designed specifically with the needs of color reproduction in the digital imager world. There's a few areas where filters really matter, and one of that is NDs. Because if you want to have a really nice wide aperture, you need a lot of NDs on the lens because these digital cameras are very sensitive. And one thing a lot of people run into is if your ND filter doesn't cut out infrared noise, you can get some really strange artifacts, especially in like black fabrics and things where you'll see color casts that you wouldn't see to the eye. So SLR Magic has an IR UV cut filter where they've really put a lot of work into specifically the spectral response curve being very even through the visible spectrum. So what that means is the, the filter should ideally not affect natural colors at all. Skin tone should look like skin tone and shirts should look like shirts, but then the IV and the UV is all getting cut out. So you should get a higher level of clarity and accuracy, which is really important. Even if you're doing a digital color grade later, if your flesh tones have been taken a little orange by using a weird filter, it's really hard to get that flesh tone back to looking really like a natural person. Uh, they put a lot of engineering into this filter. There's 50 optical coats on the lens, which is an impressive amount of engineering to go into a filter. And I'm really excited to see some activity in the filter space. And finally, we'll wrap up with another drone bit of news. Uh, Parrot, who we mostly know from headphones, has released a drone, and it's a fixed-wing drone. 
I'm really excited about fixed wing drones because they go really fast. Uh, as everybody knows, with like helicopters versus airplanes, because the helicopter, the motor has to keep you up. It can't do all that thrust forward, whereas an airplane can go much faster than a helicopter. All the speed records are set with airplanes. And so this is a fixed wing drone. Its official specs are faster than most of the other quadcopter drones. And we all know that a quadcopter drone can go quite a bit faster than its official specs. So uh, I can't wait to get my hands on a Parrot, uh, the Parrot Disco it's called, and see exactly how much faster we can get it to go than its fixed wing specs. And uh, I think we're going to see some interesting shots. Every once in a while you do run into a shot where you need a quadcopter to go faster than it can. And uh, I think fixed wing drones are going to be an answer for that. And now moving on to grant deadlines. Fusion's Project Earth Dock Challenge has a deadline of September 2nd to enter. Filmmakers from around the world are invited to register to make a short four to seven minute documentary under an assigned environmental theme. The films are judged by a jury, and the top 12 films premiere at Doc NYC, America's largest documentary festival, in November. And the top 20 films receive distribution on Fusion Network, with prizes from the top films ranging from $300 to $3,000. The Fusion Award winner also gets a $3,000 donation to a green nonprofit. September 9th is the late deadline for the POV Digital Labs in both Los Angeles and San Francisco. This is a really cool opportunity. They're a a media incubator with a track record for launching funded, highly viewed, and Webby and Emmy-nominated media. They're basically weekend-long hackathons where teams come together to create prototypes of media-related apps and products. And of course, POV is PBS's long-running documentary series. The POV Digital Lab participants will receive feedback from experts from leading media technology and venture capital companies, and Fast Companies called this one of the year's most anticipated events. When applying, there's one form for teams proposing project ideas and a second form for applicants not proposing ideas but who'd like to be added to a team to work on one of those ideas. And anybody can propose an idea, whether you consider yourself a media maker, technologist, or both, or something else. So really encourage you to apply if you're interested in the intersection between media and technology. One of the most enthusiastic debates on our site this week was in the comments of an article I posted about the 7K Films Grant, which has a deadline of September 9th also. It's offering to fund your entire film if you can make it for $7,000 and not a penny more. The organizers of the grant take inspiration from two other films that were reportedly made for $7,000, Robert Rodriguez's El Mariachi and Shane Carruth's Primer. Some of our commenters, with reason, said, hey, El Mariachi was made over 20 years ago for $7,000. What about inflation? But to prove the point that this could indeed be done, the 7K team made their own feature film first before offering the opportunity to others. The film is called Hashtag Humbled, and personally, I call into question anyone that includes a hashtag in their film title. I'm rolling my eyes right now as Uh, we speak. Hashtag I roll, but that's beside the point. Here is the catch, though. They're willing to put up the cash, but if the film makes money, they'll recoup that $7,000 and then want to take 30% of the profits. So they're really acting more as a financier than as a grantor. But if you think you're up for the challenge, look for the link to the application in this week's podcast post where the links to all of these grants and opportunities will be. Can it be made for less than $7,000 or does it have to be exactly $7,000 on the set? (laughs) It can be less, but not a penny more. Okay. Also, El Mariachi got through production on $7,000, but posts cost a lot more money. So like, is this production only? You got to get it in the can for seven grand or you have to like have a release for seven grand, like a DCP. And now moving on to festival deadlines. Uh, 
big festival deadline, or well, it's not so much of a deadline, this one, as it is a submissions are opening, so you can be on top of it, but Tribeca is now accepting submissions for features, shorts, TV, experiential work, and their Tribeca Now projects. The festival runs from April 19th to 30th next year, and I'll just do a quick rundown on what some of those categories mean. Features and shorts should be obvious, but TV is meant for episodic content, including projects created for broadcast television and or online, including pilots and episodes of existing series. All submitted episodes must be 22 minutes or longer in length. Submitted pilots must show the potential for serial growth, and submissions of episodes of an existing series are limited to new, unaired episodes only. So basically, they have to be world premieres. The experiential work category is really taking off for uh, Tribeca as well as many other festivals, but it seems like Tribeca yeah, has always placed sort of more stake in their VR category. Than yeah, they've been championing non-traditional storytelling for years. Yeah, so what that really entails are virtual reality projects to cross-platform films, websites, multimedia installations, games, and apps. So these submissions are considered for the Tribeca Storyscapes section, the Virtual Arcade, and the Interactive Playground, which are all hugely popular. Like, it's almost impossible to get into those you need to didn't you have some trouble with that this year where you had to like go uptown and then come back and the line was still like six hours long to get in Liz yeah I waited for one to see one project for seven hours yeah that's, I never saw it P.S. <laughs> it's crazy Tribeca now is sort of an extension of the above two categories with eligible projects, including web series, shorts specifically created for the online space and other episodic content meant for online viewing only. So basically the Tribeca now stage is for online work. We talked in our Tribeca episode about how we are really starting to feel like Tribeca is the launching pad for indie films in the U.S. outside of Sundance. So get on your submissions, guys. I don't know if I said it earlier, so I'll say it now. Submissions open on September 6th. The deadline is tomorrow, September 2nd, for the Portland, Oregon Women's Film Festival, which runs this March. They promote and create professional development and networking opportunities for women filmmakers of every level and feature the work of today's top women directors, honoring the true pioneers while providing support and recognition for the next generation of leading women filmmakers. One of our editors, V. Renee, who's actually based in Oregon, is covering the Portland Film Festival this week. It started Monday night and has a bunch of cool programming, so you should start to see posts from that event later this week. And if you're a lady, go ahead and submit for their Women's Film Festival. And that brings us to our Ask No Film School segment. This week, Emma Blackman asks if there are any lightweight camera stablers for people with poor upper body strength. She's looking for one to use with a small DSLR like the A7S, GH4, or Canon 5D. In her words, the only problem is that she is 5'1 and quote-unquote crazy weak, so she has a very hard time using stabilizers like the DJI Ronin or Glidecam. As great as an easy rig or something similar would be for her, she's trying to stay under $300. So, I'm going to throw it over to Charles to answer that question. So, I think this is a really great question, and I actually have a slightly different answer than what some of the people online were saying. Some of the commenters said, work on your upper body strength, and I totally agree. Being fit is part of carrying cameras, but I actually don't think that's the solution we're talking about today. Uh, It can take a lot of time to build muscles, and some people genetically will just never build muscles. But the other thing is I think we're 
facing like a misunderstanding of what these stabilizers are really good for. Like stabilizers are really designed for very specific moving shots. So if you have a shot where you're like, I want to dolly down a hallway. What most people do is they literally, they leave the stabilizer on the ground as long as they can. They pick it up, they do the shot and they put it back down. And so stabilizers aren't designed to make operating a camera longer term more comfortable. They're really designed for making very specific shots smoother. One of the things Emma mentioned is that she's getting into shooting weddings and other kind of live events. And while I've used glide cam at weddings and other kind of live events, you usually use it very sparingly. There's usually a specific moment, the father daughter dance or something like that, where you'll do like a 360 glide cam around them. But let me tell you, you like pick it up right before you walk around and do it and you put it right back down. And uh, it's because once you have the camera out there, like I don't care if you're me or you or The Rock, like nobody can hold a camera steady all the way out, like levered out from their body for a long period of time just because of basic physics. So first off, I wouldn't feel bad or call yourself crazy weak. Yeah, exactly. girl, don't ever call yourself crazy weak. You're strong. Yeah. And it, it it's not even about that. Like one of the best steady cam operators I ever worked with was like a five foot three, five foot four woman who like was amazing and great and like you know like she was obviously in good shape but like it's not about size and it's not necessarily about having a lot of muscles it's about technique and being smart and making good decisions and um you know right before the shot she picked the camera up right after the shot she put the camera down so for what you're talking about i think there are two things you should consider one you should think about a monopod a monopod is a wonderful tool if you're running around at a wedding or any kind of live event because you don't have the time it takes to set up and level a tripod, but it's way more stable and it's way easier to make it longer or shorter to get those, like if you're capturing the vows, you can run over to the side and set up your shot and the monopod makes it more stable than it would be handheld, but you don't have to be in people's faces with a tripod. And honestly, with your $300 budget, a beautiful monopod, 300 bucks, a low-end monopod, 50 bucks, I bet you can go on Craigslist for $25 and get a monopod to learn with. Then the other thing I would really consider is trying to move the weight of the camera away from your arms into your body. That's what the Steadicam has done so elegantly for 40 years, but those are $50,000. But Glidecam, a new Glidecam is 1200 bucks. I was just looking on Craigslist and eBay before I came on. I think for $300, you could probably get a vest-mounted glide cam. It would be used. It wouldn't be in amazing shape, but it would allow you to move the weight of the camera to your chest and to your legs, which on everybody's going to be stronger because our legs are carrying our body around all day. And uh, then, you know, when you're going to the gym, you do more leg day, you do more squats, you do more stuff like that, and you'll be able to do much more stable shots for longer. There's another trick. Hong Kong DP Chris Doyle, he likes to, uh, he takes a pillow and he wraps it around his stomach with a necktie and then he puts his elbows on the pillow if you can picture it so that the weight of the camera is going from his hands through his elbows right into his stomach and his stomach is holding the camera by putting the weight on the pillow. You'll look a little silly. All of the fallen angels would have been a pillow around the stomach. So for 75, you can get a beautiful pillow and a monopod, or if you're willing to go a little above in the three to 400 range, I think you can get a chest mounted glide cam or a nice shoulder mount that at least puts the weight on your shoulder, maybe moves the batteries back behind your body. And I think you'll be in a good shape. If you're dedicated, it has to be a stabilizer. I would say the DJI Osmo Plus, but that's about twice your budget. And even that, I don't think The Rock could hold that out at full arm's length for half an hour. The Rock's a great DP, though. He is. He's. He. The Rock is good at 
everything. (laughs) Emma, thanks for your question. Charles, thanks for your answer and best of luck. And here are some new movies and shows that you can check out this week on many different platforms. High Maintenance is finally making its debut on premium cable. It's the long-awaited premiere of the once-hit web series turned Vimeo series, now HBO series. Uh, the hit series. There you go. It's about a nameless cannabis delivery guy who delivers his much-needed medication to stressed-out New Yorkers. It was one of the first web series to really ever take off. I have to say that I've never seen it myself, but I just hear rave things about it from all my friends that have seen it. It was created by Ben Sinclair and Katya Blishfield. IFP will actually be doing a case study on it in a few weeks for their My First Time series during IFP week. If you live in NYC and have an IFP pass, you can try and see them on Monday, September 19th. Another movie that's premiering this week is Wiener Dog, which you can see on Amazon Prime Instant starting Friday. Wiener Dog is Todd Solondz's latest movie about a dosh hound that passes from oddball owner to oddball owner. It premiered at Sundance last year and was picked up by Amazon for exclusive distribution in the battle of the online streaming platforms. It stars Greta Gerwig and Danny DeVito, among others, and is sort of a spiritual sequel to his hit Welcome to the Dollhouse. Emily interviewed Todd Solondz a few months ago about his process during the film, and you can read that in the accompanying article. Emily also interviewed Danny DeVito, didn't she? Yep, but it was on something else. Ah, we'll stick that link in the post, too. Meanwhile, on Netflix, Man on Wire is coming out. This is James Marsh's Oscar-winning documentary about the life of tightrope walker Philippe Petit. It specifically focuses on his daring but illegal high-wire routine performed between New York City's World Trade Center Twin Towers in 1974, which some consider the artistic crime of the century. In case you guys didn't catch that, this dude walked on a tightrope between the Twin Towers like a million feet above the ground. Spoiler alert, he falls to his death. Stop! This is the documentary behind last year's blockbuster, The Walk. Clever title, guys. Directed by Robert Zemeckis and starring Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Man on Wire came out in 2008, and it was one of the early films in the documentary renaissance that's been going on the past decade. It actually got a rare 100% score by critics on Rotten Tomatoes, and it kind of proved the point that documentaries could do well theatrically. If they're good. (laughs) (laughs) That's not necessarily true. Speaking about theatrical releases, White Girl is coming out on Friday in New York City. It was written and directed by Elizabeth Wood. It's her debut feature, and for all you superhero people out there, which doesn't seem to be actually that many of you, she'll next be following in the footsteps of many other indie directors, taking on Marvel's Captain Marvel with Brie Larson. The movie stars Morgan Saylor as a privileged white girl who falls in love with a drug dealer and gets into some shady business in Brooklyn. Brooklyn. I thought it was Queens. Queens, maybe. Queens. I'll just say... In In the boroughs. In the boroughs. (laughs) And on television, that old thing, The Birth of Sake is having its U.S. premiere on the PBS program POV, which we spoke about earlier in the show. Uh, That's going to be this coming Monday, September 5th. It is a gorgeous documentary about one of the few factories in Japan who still does the traditional, very labor-intensive sake brewing process. And I actually interviewed the DP and director, Eric Shirai, over the phone while he was in Japan shooting a different project. Um, He used to be a shooter, interestingly, on No Reservations with Anthony Bourdain, which I think is a lot of shooters' dream project. Um, But this was his first feature film, and one of the things we spoke about was the differences that he found between shooting film and shooting television. Here's Shirai on that topic. 
for me, this television seems more very much on the surface. And I think people in a lot of ways ingest TV uh, and it's sort of more like it, it's just something that like consume like on a daily basis. It's not something that I feel like it's going to make you feel something so deep. And I think um, when you watch films, I feel like, I'm not saying that TV doesn't do this, but I'm saying generally speaking, I feel like film needs to go a little deeper. And I think mm-hmm. especially documentaries need to go a lot deeper. Um, mm-hmm. You can't just sort of pull around on the surface um, because I think TV can do that because it's a short format and it's, it's easily ingestible and also easily kind of dispensable in many ways. Um, and I feel like film needs to carry a little bit more volume and more depth in many ways, I think. Um, and I think so when you shoot it, I think you need to be a little bit more considerate and having sort of an aesthetic that's very, very consistent. And yeah. I feel like in TV in many ways is, is sort of all over the place. You have many different aesthetics, many different camera operators, many different styles for the ball kind of pour, poured into one pot. Um, whereas I feel like a feature film needs to feel like one person shot it and the aesthetic is very clear. The style is very clear. Thank you all for joining us this week. You can read all this and more on nofilmschool.com. Please subscribe and rate us with five stars on iTunes and get in touch. I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. I'm at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Jim, John, Jim. I'm at Charles Hain. And we are all at No Film School. We will be recording our next two shows from Toronto, and we'll also be recording a whole new slate of interview podcasts. So uh, we look forward to talking to you then. See you next week. Mm-hmm.